0: nurses, and hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. I'm super excited to continue our series on evocative poetry here on the Nurses and Hypochondriacs podcast. And I totally love my guest for today and he is Stephen Raines. He was a former poet laureate of West Hollywood and he joins us today to talk about his many creative and poetic projects as well as his new book coming out in September called A Quilt for David. Super fun episode, you won't want to miss it especially if you're a poet and a writer. And welcome to Nurses and Hypochondriacs, Stephen Raines.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh my gosh, thank you so much for being here. I have been wanting to continue my series on evocative poetry, and I'm so happy to have you, the West Hollywood poet, uh, and uh, yeah, I've been wanting to have you for a long time. So, so excited to have this. So tell us about yourself. Stephen, I mean, oh. I know when we met. We met at the Los Angeles Festival of Books. I was with my friend uh, Dan Dan Smetanka, and uh, he was mutual friends with you. And so I met you, and I was just so drawn in. I was like, "Oh, he's a poet. That's so cool," you know. And I, I think that's when you were first starting your journey, right?
1: Uh, I think maybe that was
0: 2012, I believe, something like that.
1: I don't even remember that when I was, because I'm the inaugural poet laureate of West Hollywood, and I can't even remember what year that was. I know you also attended a reading I organized yes. at the Standard, Standard, which is no longer there, which is so oh sad. God.
0: So sad. I know there was such a great event that you put out. You hosted that event, correct? The yes, poetry did. reading?
1: Yes, I did. Um, and I love I poetry. You know, there's a mystique with poetry, or people have a certain idea about it. And I really like poetry in public places, and I like people to experience poetry and realize it's not the um, how how can I say that? What what I know is that when I was so my undergraduate is um, it's English literature and creative writing, and. I remember uh, being at a party and meeting someone, and them and them saying like, uh, "I have a degree in you know, I'm studying English literature," and I was I was like, really you're a fucking lit major like I am, you know. And I think that um, I you know poetry is a love of mine, and I want to include more and more people into it. I want more people to kind of understand it and get what I have received from poetry. And so I'm not interested in, in exclusion. Or um, uh, or elitism. So yeah. So I love um, to have poetry events and and include people and for them to be introduced to the work that I like and enjoy.
0: Super cool. So how did you start writing poetry? I mean, uh, we know you were an English major, uh, or back in school and then I mean how did you how does one start writing poetry did you start writing poetry as a child in school Uh, I mean
1: so I started um you know I was a really kind of awkward kid and you know I wasn't very good at sports I actually wasn't even very good at I wasn't even very studious but I did love reading so I was always reading books and it was through books that like all these worlds opened up to me And I think um, freshman year, Phyllis Thorpe, a a communication teacher I had in high school, suggested um, I keep a journal. And it's something that she suggested to everyone. And so I was keeping a journal. And uh, soon after, I had sex with a guy for the first time, which was such a loaded experience of Um, being in a convertible in a condo parking lot. I mean, that's where my first time was. And I I remember going home and writing about it in my journal that night. And later on when I was disclosing it to my friend, Stephanie Recht, I I said, I wrote about it in my journal. And, And so I read to her the passage and she was so amused and also so charmed by it. And she said, you're such a good writer. You should be a writer. And I just followed that advice and I thought, oh, that's that's a great idea. I should do that. And and that's also a very mixed experience because it was one of the first times I remember hearing praise for being good at something. I'm not so sure I thought I was ever really good at anything. And so Stephanie's really, her her glib one-off comment was so meaningful to me because it gave me like a purpose or it showed me that um, I wasn't just an average person in the world.
0: I think that's such an important topic or concept that you're bringing up right now, because kids in high school, especially today, so lost. I, I mean, the depression rates are through the roof and I see so many patients coming in and they are, they have nothing to look forward to, but if a friend comes to them and says, hey, I think this is really great that you're doing, it means the world. I mean, that happened to me. Um, I had a friend who was using cocaine uh, in school and he would actually do it in class. And um, it bothered me. So in his uh, yearbook, like he was, a, a, I think, a year or two older than me, I wrote, hey, stop snorting the white stuff up your up your nose, right? And his sister ended up reading it. And um, she got him into therapy. She told his parents and she got him into treatment and um, it saved his life. And because he was so inspired by me, he went and um, studied Italian in Italy and he became an Italian teacher. And I ran into him in community college many years later. And he was like, Hey, and I didn't even recognize him or remember who he was. And I was like, I, then I remembered, he's like, you really inspired me and I became this Italian teacher and, Uh, he was doing other stuff which I I just was like whoa never knew that that would make such an impact but those little things and and I think that's why positive peer groups are so important to uh, have you know and to really genuinely give people compliments because you never know where that's gonna go but that that's an excellent uh, thing she she started your career (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, it was also, so like my gayness and my queerness and my uh, identity as a writer all happened essentially in the same moment. So it was this moment of spontaneous combustion of, you know, it's, it's the moment I think of about myself as being born as a writer and also as a gay man um, was in that moment.
0: Wow. It's so poetic.
1: <laughs> yeah. And when you talk about uh, children having high suicide rates, you know, just as adults, as we look through you know who is popular on social media, or th- they're the people who have a certain look or a certain aesthetic, right? right? And um, those are the ones who get the followers. So it's kind of we're in a we're in a moment right now where, um, you know, with reality TV, the people who are the most dramatic and the most unreasonable are the ones who get attention, and the same thing is true of social media: the people who have a certain aesthetic and look a certain way are the ones who have the most followers. So where does that leave talent, intelligence, skill, insight? Um, And I think when we look to celebrities or social influencers for knowledge, um, I'm not so sure that's the right place to go.
0: Excellent point. And I've been saying that for a long time, especially in the nursing community, you have a lot of these people making videos and, and be, be very sarcastic. Yeah, they might be funny, but does their what they're saying have merit? No, not really. I, I mean, and it's just like, and you look at their background, maybe they've been a nurse for a couple of years and they've had some terrible experiences. And, and yeah, it's great to talk about it and to tell your story, but come on, you know, people are now following them as influencers. And it, and it does really skew the community in a certain way, especially for teens. I mean, I attended an event and, and there was um, a woman on stage um, and um, she was a bisexual woman and she was this influencer on YouTube and I forget what her channel is about. And she said that many teenagers were coming to her and saying that they now felt that they were bisexual because of her, you know? And I was like, okay, well, did they truly innately feel that inside themselves or were they influenced by her? Do you see what I'm saying by her lifestyle? Um, I mean, it's kind of confusing at that age. Um, So I don't know, but I, I see that as well all over the place. So it it should be interesting to see what happens, you know. Yeah. And
1: I think that sometimes uh, people open up a door for us. And I think that sometimes those introductions, we don't know who they come from. Um, so I True. think it's it's great that there's so much media out there. I do think though it's important to look at the source and at a moment where I mean everyone has always had an opinion but people really believe their opinion needs. Yes. And I'm not so sure that's true.
0: Very true. It, you have a great point, especially with TikTok. TikTok is like, oh, I just joined TikTok just to do <laughs> advertising uh, for the podcast. But it is, it, it's very overwhelming. Like I can't stay on it too much. Um, It hurts my brain. So <laughs> just the content on there, I don't get it. I was just like, okay, Why? I don't understand, so. uh...
1: Oh, that why is such a good question, right? Like, (laughs) why are people so keyed into their social media? And years ago, I mean, this is before cell phones. I remember being at a dinner party that my friend had, and the telephone rang, and we were like, well, do you want to go get it? And she's like, why would I, all the people I really care about are in this room? I love that. I do too. And I think about that with social media. Like, why am I going to look at my phone? Like if I'm with friends, why would I ever bother to look at my phone? Or, um, I love New Mexico and I spend a lot of time out there and I (laughs) I know it's like, I have a dream of living there one day. Yeah. But when I'm there, I'm just like, why would I even spend a second looking at my phone? Um, like surrounded by all this beauty. And so, I think part of it is us enjoying our lives to where like, whatever's happening for us is definitely more like, why are we prioritizing other people's expression or experience or lives over our own? Like when we look at the phone, we're pulling ourselves away from us.
0: Right. And I think it's because people do not have, they don't believe their life is rich or they don't know how to enrich it. Like, uh some people don't even believe that they're creative I believe we're all creative beings we all have some sense of um eclecticism I think uh to us that makes us very unique and uh and people can't even see that in themselves you know and I think it's how the world has been it's like I that's why I try to be as very conscious and I was sharing to you with you some of my wacky experiences. And I have those wacky experiences because I'm so, con- i was like, okay, what's going to happen today? You know, where are my, where's my magic? You know, and I'm, I'm constantly looking for those magical moments. Uh, and that's what makes life so beautiful. I think, you know?
1: Yeah. And that thing about people not seeing themselves as creative. So for 23 years, I've taught creative writing workshops, um, I've taught in, in autobiographical poetry and, It's amazing how many people do not see themselves as writers or creative people, Um, especially with autobiographical poetry, they think, like, my story doesn't have value. And um, so part of what I'm doing as an educator is letting them know that uh, their experience does have merit and value. For the past, uh, I think, 16 years now, I've taught autobiographical poetry workshops to LGBTQ seniors.
0: I saw yeah. that. I think that's yeah. amazing.
1: Thank you. Yeah, we just had a reading this week. And I'm always blown away by the stories that I hear. And it's also a group that um, hasn't been encouraged to tell their stories. And, you know, we're in a society that um, it, it doesn't, you know, we for hmm, how do I want to say this? Basically, we're in a society that fetishizes and idealizes youth. And so what does that mean for people who are who have more experience who are older and i'm so glad that this workshop has given them a platform to share their life experiences.
0: That is very true. I mean, I had an experience in Palm Springs, which uh, is very funny. I walked into this restaurant called Billy Reed's and it's it's kind of like, have you been to Billy Reed's? Uh, it's very eclectic. It's kind of like walking into Knott's Berry Farm. It's very Victorian. <laughs> Everything is red. It has really gaudy furniture, but it, it's interesting. So a lot of the um, older uh, people do frequent It's uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner and hanging out at the bar. So i I walked in to get um, a Caesar salad to go. And um, I saw this lady at the end of the bar chinking her ice, you know, she was just like, mm-hmm. and, it, and it was after work. And I was like, gosh, that looks so enticing. And so another woman comes up to me, an older woman, and she's like, you're so beautiful. Look at your skin, you know, and she, and then she just walks away and she walks to the bar and I was like, I'm just going to go sit there and see what happens. It was like the bar was calling me. So I sat <laughs> there and um, the bartender was very funny and there were several, older people at the bar and they start talking about sex and dating. And it was the funniest thing. Cause then the woman that told me I look beautiful starts to say that she broke up with her boyfriend. So I go, how old was your boyfriend? She's like 85. (laughs) 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 And I go, how old are you? She's like 75. And I was like, Oh, I go, what was going on? She goes, well, he just wasn't doing it for me. He didn't know how to kiss or do anything like the sex was just bad i go well he's 85 but this is you know and, and, and it's like you think that older people don't have sex it's quite quite the contrary and the actually the std rates out there are are, are high through the roof so <laughs> but it, you know
1: well actually the you know, hearing you say that the origins of teaching um, a writing workshop for seniors started because for years I taught writing workshops around the country to queer youth groups. And then I started to be asked to teach writing workshops for um, groups of people living with HIV. And so I went to a place called the Sacred Space Retreat. And in it, I walked into my workshop and there were all of these, were individuals and actually a lot of older women with like gray hair and and I was so young um, that I was just like I'm just going to teach what I normally do which was you know when working with youth I always had them the first thing I did was write about your first time because of course that's what,
0: ah, I that's love what it. I,
1: it's what ignited me um, to become a writer and so I thought oh it's it helps everyone else it's also a very loaded experience so people have a lot to say about it and and then I thought, oh God, because I didn't know what else to do. I only had a few bags in my, you know, a few tricks in my bag. So I thought, I'm about to make these elderly women write porn. You know, I was so fearful. <laughs> and and it, though it was a very mixed group, after the writing prompt, and I asked people like, who wants to share their experience? All of these older women raised their hands. I love and it. And though that happened over twenty years ago, I still remember some of their stories. One woman talking about, you know, in the old cars, how she she would slide across the seat, uh-huh. um, and then because they parked by a lake, and they were naked, you know, that's like oh, it was a beast spot, uh-huh. and and so I thought, like that was my first experience to kind of like where I confronted my own, like my own perceptions, like you said you know, like this woman with the 85 year old boyfriend, you know, that <laughs> let's, let's all hope we're that active. You yeah. Know? Like, that's what we all want for ourselves. And, and so that's how I really started thinking about queer seniors and what their experience is like. And I'm not interested in writing poetry um, where the speaker isn't myself, that, um, that kind of writing sometimes I think really co opts someone else's experience. So instead of writing poetry from the perspective of a queer elder, I'm going to teach queer elders how to write their own stories.
0: I love that. I love that. And um, I had a similar idea. I kept telling my mother, my parents go to an Italian senior center, and this was before COVID. And I kept telling my mom, I go, Hey, I can come teach a class and we could do like a little storytelling show. I think it would be really fun because Italian people love to tell stories, you know. And she's like, Okay, well, I'll ask. Okay, I don't know, you know, and so it was just like. I was just so busy and doing so many things. I go, you know, I go out, oh, well, let's just shelf it maybe for a different time, but it, it's such a great idea, you know? And, and storytelling is, and poetry as well, the spoken word um, at live events, it, it's great. It's a great connecting tool, you know? People feel listened and validated.
1: Yeah, and that first writing workshop I taught for seniors, um, they're all still connected and they're all still friends. And and I teach it annually. Um, oh, wow. It's so nice to see the connections that are made in the community that's been formed.
0: So great. So let's talk about how you became the West Hollywood poet. I think that is such a magnificent thing. I always said, we need a Palm Springs poet, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, I had uh, Lincoln Cannon, who was the nurse poet on the show. And I had told her, I go, I think... Uh, hospitals should have a nurse poet on there. I I think that would be, that's such a great thing. And and cities should have poets, you know? I mean, we we have painters. uh, That's also making a great resurgence, which I think is awesome with all the murals going up in Los Angeles, Palm Springs, also West Hollywood as well, but.
1: Yeah, um, I think that, you know, a lot of cities, a lot of people are having, city poet laureates um, are popping up around the country and I'm so pleased that West Hollywood they created a committee and uh people applied and so I was the first uh there and there now have been I think three or four other poets
0: nice um
1: poet laureates of West Hollywood yeah, and it's, it's nice to have someone whose position is to help raise the poetry profile of a city and get the members of the community involved in poetry. I think also at this time with people with such short attention spans, I think there really is a place for poetry.
0: I think so too. I I really think so too. I also want to talk about The Gay Rub. How did you get into doing that? Tell us a little bit about The Gay Rub and then we'll talk about your book.
1: Okay, so The Gay Rub is a uh, project I created about 10 years ago where it's a collection of rubbings of LGBTQ landmarks across the world. And, you know, most people did rubbings in elementary school where you would like um, put a piece of paper over a leaf, and you know, with a black plan. Ah, yeah. So that that's what rubbings are for people who don't know. And I had an idea of a collaborative project of having people, you know, contribute rubbings from markers near their home or where they vacation of queer landmarks. And so when they're all displayed at once, it's a way of uh telling queer history and
0: and how do you find those queer landmarks because i i would think that they would be a little bit difficult i mean are they well documented or
1: no that's a great question actually they're not well documented so when i came up with the idea it was at a time where there's um the website or it was a blog actually post secret i don't know Uh if you know post secret where people would mail in on post oh yes yes
0: i on instagram yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah they would mail in their secrets there's also a website called stuff on my cat which people would um submit photos where they would actually put like pizza boxes or like you know a water bottle on top of their cat's head or their sleeping cat (laughs) so it was like a time of a lot of participatory projects and i when i came up with the idea for the gay rub i thought like oh people will you know, know of like a marker or a monument and contribute and I thought oh I, I just want to make it easier for people so I started doing research and I started to create a list of markers and then I was organizing them by state and I put that up on my website and then I had historians reaching out to me and I didn't know it was just a side so you know that I was creating the only list of its Kind, which was a list of queer markers around the world.
0: That's amazing.
1: And I, yeah, it it really shocked me. You know, when the first person reached out, I thought, oh, well, they probably don't know. (laughs) But then it was something I I repeatedly was contacted about. And thankfully, Michael Sal did a short documentary, which is online about my project, The Gay Rub. And it's, It's really a moving piece to see all of these white pieces of fabric with black lettering and noting the important people and places in LGBTQ history.
0: That's so awesome. I see it as a picture book, maybe. some. Do you have that in the works or is that your (laughs) like? I
1: I love that. It's so hard. So, you know, rubbings come in all the time for the project. So there's something about a book that I, that I fear will kind of seal it. Uh, Um, My kind of ultimate dream is for, you know, the project to keep going even after my own life. You know, I think that um, I would love for my marker to be in the gay rub at some point, but I would like it to keep going
0: yeah that's great so let's talk about your book a quilt for David and how you got inspired I mean I, I read uh, a little bit of the synopsis of the story and it's just pretty crazy <laughs> I, I mean I, I just was like it, it's sad I, I mean uh, how this person just started accusing uh, this dentist of infecting her with uh, HIV AIDS
1: yeah, so you know, some of your listeners might remember, especially since so many work in the healthcare field, because it was such a heightened time. So in 1991, a woman by the name of Kimberly Bergalis came forward, she was a college student, and she said that um, she was HIV positive and she believed she had gotten it from her dentist. And then seven other people came forward and blamed the dentist for their HIV. Um, You know, I remember seeing this on the news at the time. It was on A Current Affair, on Inside Edition, on these tabloid shows. Kimberly eventually was on the cover of People magazine. She stated that she was a virgin, so there was no other way that she could have gotten HIV except from the dentist. And when I thought about this situation about nine years ago i just i remembered it and i thought how did she get hiv from her dentist yeah you know, um for 10 years i worked i supported myself and worked as an hiv uh test counselor and educator so i was i was certified in the state of florida and in california to test and educate people on hiv so i was a very knowledgeable i'd given Um, presentations at national conferences. So, you know, when I had this flash of a memory about this, the woman, the virgin who got AIDS from her dentist, I was like, how did that happen? And so like everyone else, I just Googled it. And, And then I wasn't getting answers. Like nothing was clear. What was clear is how much homophobia was in the articles I was reading about the dentist. It really, it was a villainizing of a gay man in a small town. And why was it that this woman received so much more attention and accolades than other people at that time? So, you know, and part of it was her virgin status, right? She's the innocent victim.
0: Uh Uh-huh. I love that.
1: Yeah. As opposed to where, um, you know in the early 80s of um hiv and aids we had people like ryan white the ray brothers arthur ash who their infections were from blood transfusions and so this there's this kind of like this innocent category like these innocents and it's we're so thankful that these people were public about their infections because it really softened public's you know, the public perception of people with HIV. Yet, then in the early 90s, we have people like Allison Goetz out of New York and Magic Johnson, who were talking about their HIV infection in terms of their own personal risks that they took through sex. So I see this as like a different wave of public education and empathy. You know, but of all the, you know, the eight people who came forward and blamed Dr. David Acker, their dentist, you know, Kimberly has a beach named after her. You know, she has four four panels on the AIDS quilt. And so it's really interesting to just kind of look at this phenomenon of, you know, the people who wanted to save Kimberly. There was also an older woman by the name of Barbara Webb, who was a grandmother who she blamed. Her HIV infection on uh, the dentist as well. And so, you know, what really happened in that dental office and who is this dentist? And, right. and there are a lot of questions for that. There's a whole book devoted to the premise that the dentist, David Acker, was a serial killer. And of course, you know, I at the time I like bought the book, I was fascinated, like, oh, what's going on? But the more I read that, it just seems so seeped in homophobia as well. You know, he's saying that David had a double life because he wasn't out in the town he lived in and he would travel um, south, because this happened in Jensen Beach, Florida, or people know of it as the Treasure Coast. And so David on weekends would travel to Fort Lauderdale or Miami to go out to gay bars. This is what a lot of gay men do in small towns, right? And so this is the premise of David being a serial killer and living a double life. And I I know it's so ridiculous. And so many of the things that I read, I just had tremendous empathy for this man. Um, whether he accidentally infected his patients or he didn't infect any of his patients, it's something like, what was his life like for him? And he was aware, um, you know, weeks before his death, that there was someone who accused him, and and so he wrote a letter and paid for it as an advertisement in the local paper, stating that he was sorry to hear the accusations, he took all necessary precautions, and he encouraged his patients to get HIV uh, tested. Um, That doesn't seem, that action doesn't seem aligned with someone who, would have been a neglectful dentist,
0: or Or a serial killer. Yeah,
1: exactly. I agree. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was such a heightened and historical time around HIV that um, I think it must have been hard for people to really look at what was going on. And, you know, it's, it's sad that so much time has passed. And, He's still known as the dentist who gave his patients HIV. And, you know, when looking through like articles in the New York Times, or even the lawyer that Kimberly hired to sue the dentist's estate, um, where it is believed that they received a million dollars from his malpractice insurance, Wow, that words like alleged are never used. Um, possible infection uh, the media was using very definitive
0: language
1: and that really set the narrative for the time
0: it's very very sad um for him but it, it's it's also a good thing that you're almost vindicating him you know uh or helping him out right uh with your book but you wrote it in a uh, did, I use vin- did I use the right word? <laughs> no, 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 no. I actually <laughs> love
1: hearing you use the word uh, like vindication because the way it is, what I want, what I'm doing in the book is I'm humanizing David Acker. and that's something that wasn't being done in the media at the time. When his staff would share information about him, it would get twisted and turned into something that might potentially sound spurious. His family chose silence. And unfortunately, that meant there were no dissenting voices or commentary to what was being said in the media. Also, as a gay man, who are your friends, other gay men? And so are they going to out themselves to defend someone, where already it seems like the you know, things are stacked against your friend. So it's, you know, there's been very little humanizing of him or really considering what his life experience was like.
0: Yeah. I love that. It's almost like this is channeled, you know, I I mean, we, so you had been following this story forever and you were just like, now is the time for you to write. I mean, how did you come to that definitive moment of like, okay, I got to write this now?
1: I, you know, I use writing to make sense of things. So ever since the beginning, that first time of trying to make sense of that first sexual experience, what I was doing in my journal was I was creating a, a narrative or make, or putting my thoughts out on the, onto the page. And so I go to writing to know myself better to make sense of things, and I think that's what I was doing with this situation. And I, you know, it, I ended up traveling to Florida three different times to interview people who worked with David Acker, who were friends with him. Eventually, I even talked to sex partners of Dr. Acker.
0: Wow. And
1: people who knew Kimberly and some of his other accusers. And it was also, and also going through court documents into the local library. I did hardcore research for a, a lot of
0: work. Time. Wow, yeah it's very, very impressive.
1: Thank you. And one thing I wanted to do in this book is I took zero poetic license that every detail in the book is something that I read from articles or I found out from the people I interviewed. The story is saturated with so much misinformation. That I didn't want to add any of my own fiction or musings to the story. So, though it's a collection of poetry and prose, I didn't want—I wanted everyone to know that when they're what they're reading, there's something to back it up. It's unusual for a book of poetry and prose to have a bibliography, but this book does uh, because there there are resources that I encourage people to read up on. And, and know that what is printed on the page is, is information that I've experienced elsewhere.
0: And I think that's great because you're backing up your research, you know, and in as nurse practitioners, we always have to use evidence-based research to back everything up because that's the first thing people will say, well, where'd you get your research? Where'd you get that information from? So that's excellent that you did that. And when will your book be out?
1: So the book's release date is September 14th. Awesome. And it's published by City Lights, which I couldn't be more thrilled about. Um, we all know City Lights from publishing Ellen Ginsburg, Ellen Ginsburg's *How*, and of course, it was founded by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and they published Kerouac and Chow's like everyone. Um, so I'm so pleased that they um, recognize the value in this book. And it's if you pre-order the book from City Lights, it's actually. Uh, back from the printer and so people are receiving their books now so that's really thrilling even though it is early um that if you order now through the city lights website that you can receive your book
0: excellent i am so excited to read it i can't wait so steven any closing remarks where can people find you you're also a licensed clinical psychologist correct
1: yes yeah correct um They can find me at stephenrains.com. So it's stephen with a V, Reigns, R-E-I-G-N-S.com. I I also have the website, aquiltfordavid.com. And my work as a psychotherapist is so separate from everything that I do. But to find out more about how I practice, my website is therapyforadults.com.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for being on. And everybody needs to buy Stephen's book, as I will. right till next time thank you it's been a pleasure awesome thanks for listening to our nurses and hypochondriacs podcast we love your support and we love our listeners if you have some spare change go ahead and throw some to us on our venmo at nurses and hypocon also go ahead and leave us a review on itunes we'd love that and if you'd like to be a guest Go ahead and send us an email at nursesandhypochondriacs. At-